and turn to Philippians 1, verses 3 to 11. Let me go ahead and And read that for us. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to think this about all of you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners of God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best, and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I don't know how many of you know this, but there are some very large churches, they tend to be generally quite large churches, that have pastors of vision, and planning. Um, smaller churches might have committees to decide what the church's mission and vision is and to make long-range plans. And if you don't have a, a, a pastor who does that and you don't have a committee who does that, you can go buy books on it. There are endless books written on these ideas of what is it that the church is supposed to do. And as much as I like books... Um, I've never read a book on that kind of thing. Because I turn right here. I love these introductions to Paul's letters because in these introductions we can see what Paul's heart and what Paul's passion and what Paul's focus is for the church. We don't need a pastor of vision or a committee or or books, and and maybe all those things are fine, and there's a time and a place um, for those. But I like to turn to see what Paul says to his churches. This church in Philippi is unique among others. This letter is unique among the other letters he's written, because again, he's not writing to correct any... Uh, doctrine that's going astray. He's not cor- not writing to correct any um, significant sorts of immorality that are that are tearing apart the church. He's writing to strengthen and encourage and support a church that he loves, the first church that he started, a church for which he has great affection. And I think in this we can see. Um, We can call it a model, we can call it a vision, we can call it a purpose for what the church is supposed to be. And I see three things in here, um, three characteristics of Paul's vision for the church. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all three of them. That way when I get to the second one, you can kind of know I'm like halfway through. 
All right. Paul's vision for a church that honors and glorifies God is, first of all, it's a church that participates. Second, it's a church that partners. And third, it's a church that produces. They all start with P. I was a Baptist. <laughs> and that's what we do. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, we see the importance of a church that participates. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Always, I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you. And why? Because of your participation. Some of your translations may say fellowship. Um, it's the Greek word koinonia, which a lot of people know from various places. Because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So notice, first of all, that it's this participation that's the very reason for Paul's prayerful joy. It's their participation. But now, let's define what participation is. It's not simply agreement. It's not simply sort of being... Um, you know, like-minded on similar issues. That's kind of what the word fellowship denotes to me, is this sort of, we kind of all sort of agree and kind of all get along about things. That's not what's going on here. We need to understand that the participation of the Philippian believers in the gospel is very concrete. In fact, it takes the form of a financial gift. I'm going to read for you now 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, which is the background of this, of this participation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Now we make known to you, brothers and sisters, the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia. Those would be the believers in Philippi. That during a severe ordeal of suffering, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. For I testify that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They did so voluntarily, begging us with great earnestness for the blessing and fellowship of helping the saints. And they did this not just as we had hoped, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So when Paul is thankful for this participation that the Philippians had in the gospel, it's a very concrete thing for them. It's a participation that takes the form of them giving a financial gift to them. They gave out of their poverty. They gave out of the, gener the wealth of their generosity. And not only that, they, they begged to give even more. That's the form their participation has taken. And this explains to a great deal why Paul has such affection for the Philippians. So their participation was concrete. Notice also that the purpose of this participation has to do with the gospel. I don't think Paul's saying that he's thankful because they've believed the gospel, although they have. 
but rather he's saying that their participation in Paul's ministry of the gospel, as well as their participation in the advancement of the gospel in Philippi, you see both things are going on. Those move Paul to thanksgiving every time he thinks about it. This is the kind of relationship he has with these believers. That every time he thinks of them, what comes to mind is their generosity. And it moves him to thank God. Paul will go on to say towards the end of this first chapter that the unity of the church is a confirmation that their message is true. That the unity of the church is a confirmation that their message is true. This is why their partnership is so important to him. You see, when it comes to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church cannot be divided. We can have all sort of our doctrinal ducks in a row, We can cross all the T's and dot all the I's, but if we're not united for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it speaks to the world that what we believe isn't true. So the purpose of this participation was for the gospel. This participation, Paul says in verse 6, is perfected by God himself. Again, this is one of these really quotable verses in Philippians that maybe we somewhat misunderstand because we've heard it so many times out of its context. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? But I think it would be odd for Paul to turn immediately from this recognition of a concrete gift that they've given and then give us this somewhat abstract, yet quotable, theological statement. So when Paul says that God will finish what he started, that he is faithful to perfect what he has begun, I think he's still talking about their gift. While their pockets were poor, their generosity was wealthy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians Yet we still don't know, right? We still don't know if their gift was enough. Speaking from a strictly economic perspective, uh, perhaps even though they gave out of their poverty and they gave even more than they should have and they begged to help even more, maybe it was still only a fraction of what Paul really needed. We don't know. But regardless, what we do know is that Paul is confident that their gift is sufficient because he's confident that the one who moved in them, that very generosity, will complete what he himself started. Of course, there is a significant truth in this statement of God's character and his faithfulness that applies to other contexts. So we can safely say that if God begins a good work, he is faithful to perfect it. He is faithful to complete it. He is the kind of God who finished what he starts. Yet we miss out on an enormous source of confidence in ministry if we apply this only to salvation in an abstract way. 
to his continuing to shape us to the image of Christ until he returns. That is all true because that is the kind of God he is. But yet he is equally faithful to take the wealth of our generosity, however small it may be in human terms, and to complete it for his purpose and for his glory, regardless of the poverty of our pockets. So Paul's vision for the church, for the church that honors God, for the church that glorifies God, for the church with which God is pleased, is that it is a church that participates. The second part of Paul's vision in these in this passage for a church that honors and glorifies God, for a church with which God is pleased, is a church that partners. You see, partners for the gospel are changed by and working toward grace. Being a partner in grace unites believers to each other and also unites them to Paul. And not only have they experienced grace as a gift of God that results in a change in relationship, but they are now working, again, in their own community, but also through their support of Paul's ministry to bring this grace to others through the proclamation of the gospel. This is what Paul means by being partners in grace. But he says even more. Paul says that these to be a partner in grace, you must be willing to suffer. You must be willing to suffer. I have a hard time understanding suffering, especially when it comes to the gospel. But I've learned over the years, uh, not only through my study of the New Testament, but through relationships with friends. That suffering can take many forms. And I'm going to say this kind of generally. When we read these passages about suffering, it's not only suffering because I'm a Christian directly. It's not only like suffering because I'm willing to say the name of Jesus Christ in a culture that will somehow persecute me or cause me to suffer for saying the name of Jesus Christ. There are millions of Christians around the world who live in contexts like that. I generally don't and have a hard time relating to it. But suffering can be any situation that tempts us to stop believing, to deny that what Jesus has done on our behalf is worth dying for. I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine. Um, Amber and I, before we had kids, we lived in Galveston, Texas, uh, another island, um, for three years. And we were um, quite involved in a church there. And I had the opportunity one summer while our pastor was away. At, uh, he was a former um, Army Ranger. And after September 11th happened, he re-enlisted as a chaplain. And so he went away as, like, it was like a few months before the max cutoff age, whatever that was. He went away as an older guy to basic training. I had the much easier job, I think, of filling the pulpit for him for three months. Um, and I preached Philippians. I preached the whole book of Philippians in about 12, 12 weeks or so. And um, 
one really sweet friend of ours. Her name is Jen. She came up to me after a few weeks because we had talked so much about suffering for the gospel and those sorts of themes. And she was concerned. Um, you see, Jen has, and I was going to look it up, but I don't have internet. I can't remember what it's called. Jen has had a condition since she was a teenager where her soft tissue, her cartilage, slowly turns to bone. And she is roughly our age, right? A little older than us, but looks elderly and is quite crippled and has been for a very long time. And so her concern, she came to me and said, is this suffering? Like, can I relate to what Paul's saying about suffering? Because I'm not, she says, I'm not suffering for the gospel. This didn't happen to me because I'm a Christian. So how do I relate? And it really forced me to dig into what Paul says about suffering and to see if, what if these physical things, I mean, we have so many people around here with cancer and other things going on. Like, are, are those suffering? Can, can they be encouraged by Paul's words about suffering? And I came to see that any sort of circumstance that could present you with the temptation to quit following Jesus, I think Paul would say is suffering. So if your physical issues, your, your health, um, whatever it is, if they present you with a situation where you are tempted to just say, you know what, following Christ isn't really doing anything for me anymore, and I'm done. If it presents that temptation for you, then I believe that these words of Paul on suffering for the gospel can support you and encourage you. So suffering can be any situation that tempts us to stop believing, to deny that what Jesus has done on our behalf is worth dying for, and worth remaining faithful to until the end. Also in this context, there was a temptation for followers of Jesus to be so embarrassed by Paul's suffering that they would deny the truth of this message. Um, at least in the West, we tend to have such an individualistic view of life that sort of what a friend or family member does, maybe someone who's connected to me in some way, if they do something that's shameful, ah, that's on them, right? Like, that's too bad, that's unfortunate. But many cultures, including the ancient Near East, um, they have this view of reality and this view of relationships that, that say what someone in the community does matters to me. And so if someone in the community is suffering, or if someone in the community does something shameful, that's not just their issue. That's my issue too. And so there was this idea that when someone else suffered, that was a sign that God or the gods, right, had a problem with them and that they didn't do what they were supposed to do to avoid those sorts of circumstances. And there was shame attached to that because it wasn't just their problem. It was the community's problem. So now apply that into an ancient Near East context of a Jesus community. 
There could have been a temptation to view Paul's suffering as a sign that what he was doing wasn't right and wasn't good and wasn't true. I think that's why Paul points to this idea that that you were partners with me in both the defense and the confirmation of the gospel and in his imprisonment. You see, as Paul defends the gospel, as he confirms the gospel, he (coughs) suffers, and ultimately he's imprisoned. And in a normal context during that day, that would have been a source of great shame for that community. But Paul is saying, in the Jesus community, not so. And so he is greatly encouraged by his friends, by his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi, because they remained faithful to Paul, and they remained faithful to Christ, even when this defense and confirmation of the gospel resulted in suffering. So suffering takes many forms. Paul suffers directly. The Philippian believers sort of go through this indirect suffering, Are they going to stand by Paul and stand by Christ, or are they going to succumb to this perceived shame of suffering and walk away? Notice, too, that suffering here must be for the gospel, and I've talked about that already, but I just want to make this point. The kind of suffering that Paul talks about isn't for opinions. It's not for personalities or personality differences. And it's not suffering for what divides us, but it's suffering for what should unite us. And that's the next point, is that suffering unites us. As we suffer together, it unites us to those who have suffered before us. Suffering connects us to the persecuted. It also connects us to our king, who was persecuted and who suffered. And suffering shapes our life after his. Almost all of these themes that we're we're mentioning here in, in these verses, Paul is going to flesh out even more completely as he goes throughout this book. Uh, this one in particular in chapter 2. But suffering connects us to our king. Do you get this, that we worship and we serve a king who suffered? Who suffered on our behalf? So the kind of church that honors God is the church that participates. The kind of church that honors God, uh, the vision Paul has for the church is that it's a church who partners in grace, through suffering. And finally, the kind of church for which Paul has this vision is a church that produces. And here we kind of have this change of events, this chain of events, sorry, this chain of events that occurs. Verses 9 through 11. And I pray this... Again, we, here we get to the content of Paul's prayer. That your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So when I say it's a church that produces, I'm referring to this fruit of righteousness. But before we get to the fruit of righteousness, notice that production, fruitful production, has prerequisites. First, Paul prays that they have this love that abounds even more and more, and it abounds in knowledge and in insight. And the purpose of all of this is so that they can decide what is best. And the purpose of that is so that they can be sincere and blameless. And all of this results in the production of this fruit that Paul talks about. Love abounding in knowledge and insight. Let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean tough love, as some have supposed. I often hear Christians blaming their utter lack of compassion and their eagerness to act as judge, jury, and executioner in any situation, especially of those who don't share their worldview, on this idea of tough love or this biblical-sounding concept. Well, it is a biblical concept of speaking the truth in love. But Christian love, abounding in knowledge and insight, it is tough, but it's tough on the lover because it follows the example of Jesus. Christian love in this context lays down its life. Christian love in this context becomes a slave. Christian love in this context works for and speaks for the benefit of others rather than its own benefit. That's why it's tough. For me to love someone like Christ has loved me, it's tough for me. That's tough love. It's tough for me to become a slave. It's tough for me to submit my will. It's tough for me. Incredibly unnatural for all of us to treat someone other, to treat someone else like they are more important than we are. So I guess it is tough love. This love abounds in the context of knowledge and insight, not just information. Facts may inform us of what is, but they do not help us decide what is best or what is excellent. Simple example. Chemistry and physics can provide knowledge and facts, but they alone can't decide whether it's better or more excellent to use nuclear energy to heal or to harm. So Paul's not simply talking about factual information. I would summarize this idea of knowledge and insight with the word wisdom. The best way to understand knowledge and insight is probably simply to replace them with the word wisdom. This wisdom gives us the opportunity and responsibility of discerning and deciding what is best. For example, the Philippians found it best to give out of the wealth of their generosity 
even though their pockets were poor. Man, if they just simply analyzed the facts, if they'd gone to each member of their fellowship, hey, what's, let's look at your account. Let's look at your account. Let's see what we can give. Let's look at the facts of the situation. I don't know what would have happened. But instead of looking at the facts, they used the wisdom, God-given wisdom to decide what's best. And they found it best to give, even out of their poverty, because their generosity was wealthy. They also found it best to stand by Paul, despite the shame that his sufferings could bring. Why? Because they knew that their unity in this mission would be a sign of its truth. The result of this kind of wisdom is that the church will be found to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, Paul says. This does not simply mean that the church will be morally pure in a narrow sense. Um, There's a lot to say about that, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. I went to a church um, as a child, unfortunately, that we, well, maybe fortunately that we stopped going to it. I don't know, but um, we, my family sort of had a church crisis when I was uh, five, six years old, maybe, from which uh, I don't think they've ever recovered. It was one of these churches that defined this idea of being pure and blameless in a very narrow way. What kind of movies did you watch? What kind of music did you listen to? Do you smoke? Do you drink? How do you vote? I left out dancing. That was a pretty important one, too. Playing cards. Playing cards. Yeah. Right, there's a lot we could probably add to those lists. It makes things black and white. It makes things pretty easy. But that's not what Paul means by pure and blameless. Uh, They're really quite beautiful words. The words pure and blameless refer more to sincerity and and integrity of purpose. I like to think of them as meaning something like undivided and loyal. Our message is sincere. Our devotion is undivided. And our commitment is loyal to one. That's what Paul means by pure and blameless. And then we have this image that this occurs until the day of Christ. I don't know exactly what this means. But here's how I like to think about it. I like to think that when Jesus returns, he wouldn't have to look far to find what's his because it will be obvious to him. My fear is that he's going to have to dig through a lot of stuff before he finds his church. But when Paul says pure and blameless until the day of Christ, I picture Jesus returning and him saying, there they are. Right away, there's my bride. There are my people. They are loyal and undivided in their commitment and their devotion. And notice now that this product, this producing of a fruit, is a fruit of righteousness. This raises a question. A very good question. Does this righteousness refer 
to righteousness that Jesus Christ gives to us, or that, or is it the righteousness that we produce as a consequence of that? Does righteousness through Jesus Christ produce the fruit, or is righteousness through Jesus Christ itself the fruit? Do you see the difference? And I'm going to say it must be both. We cannot produce a work that we have not experienced. I can't love righteously until I have understood and experienced the love of the righteous one. You see, I cannot be a peacemaker, bringing reconciliation to those around me until I have experienced peace with God. I can't exhibit this joy that Paul talks about until I have known the one whom for the joy set before him endured the cross. I cannot act righteously until I have received and experienced righteousness itself through Jesus Christ. So how do we participate How do we partner and how do we produce? First of all, how do we participate? Participating in this ministry today means that we have to do more than just offer thoughts and prayers on Facebook. We need to be willing, as Jesus did, as Paul models for us, as the Philippian believers model for us, we need to be able to, We need to be willing to answer situations in very concrete ways. Does it always take the form of a financial gift? Obviously not. But rather than praying hand emojis (laughs) or like, it's weird when someone puts up like a really tragic Facebook post. do Do you like this? Like, you want them to know you've read it and like you feel bad for them, but there's not really a I feel bad symbol. So you, you can like it or you can cry it or, or whatever. And that's, and, and that's all fine. I don't have an issue with that at all. But we need to look to see how can we, in concrete ways, help those around us to help our neighbors. I mean, this is, uh, this is the Good Samaritan. I mean, this is... So much of Jesus' teaching. So I don't have, I don't know all of you, and those of you I do know, I don't know your situations well enough. I can't say you should follow steps A, B, and C this week to become more um, participatory in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think if we all look around us and make an effort to answer some of these situations in more concrete ways um, and then to not stress if we're not doing enough, right? Um, We give out of the wealth of our generosity. God will complete it. And then how do we partner, especially in this context of suffering? Well, it begins with not being ashamed of those who suffer for Christ's sake. I don't know if that's a temptation for us or not.
but it also means we don't flinch in the face of our own suffering. So whatever situation that you're in or situations that will come that could cause you to be tempted to stop believing, don't fear. Know that in those situations, to the extent that you persevere, to the extent that you endure, you are uniting yourself with millions who have gone before you who have suffered for their faith. You've united yourself with the Apostle Paul who suffered for his faith. And they all did that because their Savior modeled it for them. And then finally, how do we produce? Again, I'll say this. We cannot produce what we have not experienced. Think of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Like Those are all great ideas, like in any place, right? In the workplace, wherever. Um, we all want to be part of an environment where those those fruit of the Spirit are, are celebrated and practiced. But I don't think we can fully produce those unless we've experienced them in Jesus. And then finally, how do we produce? Maybe this is better. How do we know that we've produced? Okay. I think this, when people look at our lives and our character, how we treat others, how we respond to situations, they should see as something that looks a whole lot like Jesus and less and less like Curtis or less and less like Bill or less and less like John and more and more like Jesus. Then we'll know that we're on our way to producing this fruit that we've experienced. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we need your help uh, to do any of this. Uh, to do a fraction of this requires so much strength and support from you and from one another. And so much patience when we fail. Uh, Lord, we're just uh, grateful that when we fail, that you do not give up on us. And I pray that we would, have it, having experienced your faithfulness, that we would exhibit that same kind of faithfulness to you. That when situations seem to come that tell us that everything's against us, that we would not fail. That we would not fall. That we would stand and remain faithful to you. until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that this church would be a church that would just catch on to this vision that you've given us for what the church can and should be, and that we'd be willing to follow the model of Paul, the model of Jesus, the model of so many other faithful believers for us to make sure that it's done so that when you do return, that you recognize us right away. Amen.